India's foreign policy. There is a Cold War history which we can blame each other for, you know, maybe some missteps took place on our side, maybe some mistakes took place on the side of Western countries, including Australia. Information warfare. At a tactical distance, we will always be disadvantages because we don't do the lies, we don't come up with the conspiracy theories as a, as a matter of practice. Geopolitics and Australia-Netherlands cooperation. NATO is looking first and foremost at Euro-Atlantic security, but it's, it's also true that in this world, security is global uh, and that we need to look at that from a global perspective. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. To kick off this week, Barney Graywell speaks to Ashok Malik, partner and chair of the India practice at the Asia Group and Aspie Visiting Fellow. They discuss India's foreign policy under Modi, including its relationships with the West and China and Russia, and developments in the Australia-India relationship and why it's significant that the Ricina Dialogue is coming to Sydney. Thanks, Ashok, for joining us at Aspie today. Ashok has been here in Canberra for a week now as an Aspie Visiting Fellow. So my first question is about Indian foreign policy more broadly. What do you see has been the biggest change in Indian foreign policy under Prime Minister Modi? And how much do you think Indian Foreign Minister Jay Shankar has played a role in that? Thanks, Mani, and thanks, Aspi, for hosting me. And uh, it's been a wonderful week in Canberra. I first came to the city, I realized this morning, in 2004, 19 years ago, and it's as wonderful as it's always been. Uh, Coming to the big changes in Indian foreign policy under Prime Minister Modi in, in, since he took office in 2014, I'd say the standout change has actually been in the Indo-Pacific, in, in the relationship with Australia and the, the mainstreaming of the Quad platform from just an idea in 2014, an idea that had died away actually, to something that got revived at the foreign minister's level in 2019 and moved up the summit level very, very quickly. It's one of the most exciting innovations in Indian foreign policy, and I would say in the global system, because it has so much potential. Prime Minister Modi has worked towards integrating India with its broader neighborhood, not just its South Asian neighborhood, but its broader neighborhood, the Indo-Pacific to its east, and uh, the Gulf countries to to our west. Uh, When I say Gulf, I include Israel here, which is, of course, further away. And this is apparent in, in the two quads, the traditional quad, which is India, Japan, Australia, and the US, and the I2U2, or the Western quad, which is the UAE, Israel, the US, and India. The fact that India has invested so much in these two very different partnerships tells you something about our emphasis uh, in terms of foreign policy. Second, uh, Mr. Modi has linked India's foreign policy much more strongly to India's uh, contemporary security challenges, which are traditional and non-traditional. They include climate change, they include technology, critical technologies, critical emerging technologies, materials, in addition to, of course, terrorism and the likelihood of armed conflict, which are traditional challenges. Third, he's linked foreign policy very, very strongly to India's economic modernization and is looking to invest in partners who can help us with our economic modernization and industrialization. Uh, 
in this entire journey, Dr. Jay Shankar, our foreign minister, who was earlier foreign secretary, has been a, a loyal number two to Prime Minister Modi. He's he's carried forward Prime Minister Modi's vision into structured policy, and uh, in a sense, been his ambassador, his roving ambassador across the world. You touched upon the Quad and how countries like the United States and Australia have played an important role under Prime Minister Modi's uh, foreign policy. I just wanted to ask you about what does India want from its partnerships from the West? And the reason I ask this is historically, India has been at, at times been at odds with the West and some differences still remain. True, differences remain, but there is a Cold War history which we can blame each other for, you know, maybe some missteps took place on our side, maybe some mistakes took place on the side of Western countries, including Australia. But we are where we are. The 21st century propels us towards working together. We are countries that may disagree on many issues and we are not identical countries but or identical systems. But we have more in common than we have not in common. We share values. We share an interest and a commitment to a rules-based order, to an open trading system, to transparency in the international system, especially in, in, in the international commons, the global commons. And do remember that a country or a nation or a society that wants all of this internationally cannot fundamentally be different at home. There may be nuances here and there which, which make us different, but fundamentally we are very more similar than dissimilar. What does India want from its Western partners? It wants to contribute to the global order, which the Western partners have built, quite frankly, since the Second World War and since the Cold War, and, and expand it expand its ambit, expand its its stakeholder base. Uh, it wants to use its new economic weight, its new developmental weight, to add luster to that international order and make it more democratic and more, more acceptable to a greater number. Because do remember, India sees itself as a country which shares deep values and ambitions and aspirations with the people of the West. It also has a deep historical relationship and a developmental narrative that makes sense to people of the global south, which is what makes us different from a traditional Western country. Because we have one foot in the global south and one foot in the west. And Minister Jayashankar put it best when he said we are a southwestern country. So just building on from that, I think we've spoken about, you mentioned India's relationship with the west and now with the global south. But we also can't, escape India's relationship with Russia and what that means for the modern world. Many commentators look at India's relationship with Russia through the lens of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But what was the status of the bilateral relationship before the invasion? And where do you think is it heading now? Russia and India have had a, a long-standing relationship going back to the Cold War. We were not in the Russian camp, but we were friendly with the Russians. And when uh, the U.S. in particular denied us high-grade weaponry, military equipment and weaponry, and the Russians offered it. We took it. Let me give you another civilian example. You know, uh, my father was a steel technologist, and he was just grateful in the early years when steel plants were set up in a poor country like India with support from the Germans, with support from the Russians, and so on. He wasn't looking at it as communist steel or capitalist steel. He was looking at steel. 
so when a country offers you help and you are uh, a poor struggling post colonial society you take that help with gratitude whether that help is american and american help did come australian help came as did russian help so there is a certain goodwill for the help that russia offered us as there is goodwill for the help america or australia offered us in those days but in more contemporary times we have a legacy relationship in terms of military equipment because we bought a lot from them at a time when the west did not sell to us uh, that legacy remains our sourcing of military equipment has diversified it's moved to the us israel the us israel france of course but uh, and to other european countries as well but there is a substantial legacy purchase that still comes from russia primarily because of spares and components unfortunately the economic relationship outside the defense realm is very limited we've struggled to expand it we've struggled to expand trade this is of course all before the, the ukraine war but in the year before the ukraine war india russia trade was amounted to 13 billion dollars india us trade was about 125 billion dollars so that should tell you something about the trajectory of the relationship however politically i must tell you we live in a very difficult neighborhood and uh, we have challenges in central asia in afghanistan in that part of the world in in, in the in the eastern end of uh, the great eurasian heartland and russia has sometimes been helpful there so i would want to factor that in as well along with russia india has had a long relationship with china which had often times been troubled most recently the border conflict in 2020 which is ongoing you know indian and chinese troops are still deployed at their border and also now tech competition so how does india view the growing china russia partnership which is you know many commentators saying which would probably grow even more in the next decade i think you're right and i think those commentators are right one of the consequences of the ukraine war will be a russia that is uh, perhaps weaker and more depleted of its resources also more distracted and perhaps closer to china that is a concern that's a concern not just for india as a concern for many countries in asia including japan japan has the same concerns many analysts in, in the west have the same concerns but we are where we are in the case of india and china uh we have a contested border a large contested border which became even more contested or, or the contest contestation of which became more fraught and exacerbated after the chinese annexed tibet and uh, consolidated their control over xinjiang in the late 1940s or early 1950s the indian union territory or federal territory of ladakh uh, in a sense uh, borders xinjiang and that is where much of the problem lies we haven't agreed on where the border lies we both claim territory in that region however between 1993 and about 2011 i think over the 20 year period we concluded four border management agreements which uh, allowed both sides to to come to a modus vivendi to not give up their claims but agree to some protocols which would allow for each other's troops to patrol areas both claimed and then having made their claim to go back it 
called for troops to be maintained in both countries in, in areas that were clearly Chinese or clearly Indian at a considerable distance from each other and from the border uh, so that there was no risk of a clash. In the summer of, or the spring of 2020, while all of us were waking up to COVID, the Chinese tore up those agreements. Uh, they massed together lots of forces for exercises, they claimed, and then suddenly those troops turned around and marched another, in another manner, in, in another direction. And they ended up very close to the Indian border. At, at their peak, there were 100,000 troops, which is the greatest mobilization at our border ever. And we, we didn't know what they were doing there, what their purpose was, whether it was intimidation, whether it was something else, we don't know. It, it was obviously part of a pattern of Chinese behavior in that, in that period, in, in other theaters in Asia, including Hong Kong, coercion, economic coercion with Australia, many examples, but we certainly faced the brunt of it. When they mobilized, we mobilized. And soldiers who should have been many, many kilometers apart, in some cases hundreds of kilometers apart, were suddenly a few meters apart. In very forbidding conditions, very, very cold conditions, cold conditions at the height of summer, and uh, absolutely unbelievable conditions in winter. It led to a clash, which we feared, and it led to a clash which saw the deaths of 20 Indian soldiers in Galwan. It also saw the death of at least four Chinese soldiers. We believe more died. Uh, the Chinese have only admitted to four. So the, the real number will come out in some years, I guess. That has changed things between India and, and China. There is a lack of trust, and I don't think that trust is going to come back in a hurry. It's made the line of actual control, as we call it, between India and China, the provisional border, a militarized border. And once you've militarized a border in that manner, once you survive the first winter, you can survive the next five winters. And which is why I think this is a long-term problem. And we've entered a new phase in our relationship with China, which is not going to go away in a hurry. So my last question for you today, Ashok. You spoke earlier about how Indian Foreign Minister Jay Shankar is Prime Minister Modi's ambassador in the world. He is arriving in Australia this weekend for his third visit in under a year. That's a testament to the strengthened partnership and the work Minister Jay Shankar has put into the relationship with Australia. Could you tell our listeners why the inaugural Raisina and Sydney dialogue, along with Minister Jay Shankar's third visit, is so important? You know, this is actually... Part of a process, if you look, you spoke about visits. Let's look at some, some interesting information about or data about visits. Prime Minister Modi comes here in 2014. The first Indian Prime Minister to come to Australia in 28 years, since Rajiv Gandhi in 86. Usually when you have a Prime Ministerial visit from India, you don't have another Prime Ministerial visit or presidential visit for some time. In 2018, the President of India comes to Australia for the first time. Foreign Secretary and then Minister Jay Shankar has come numerous times. In the past one year, as you said, this is his third visit. Since May, when the new government took office, this would be the 10th visit by an Indian minister. 10th visit by nine unique ministers. Mr. Jay Shankar would have come a second time. This is unprecedented in our history. And Australia has become a very consequential partner, a partner that contributes to the shaping of ideas, the shaping of economic thinking, the shaping of geopolitics, that contributes to the shaping of the long view from Delhi. 
And the fact that the Raisinai Dialogue, which is our flagship foreign policy dialogue uh, put together by the Ministry of External Affairs and the Global Research Foundation, is the fact that the Raisinai Dialogue is partnering with ASPI uh, to make Sydney one of the, the locations of the Raisinai Dialogue, uh, in addition to cities like Washington, tells you something about how important Australia is in, to, to the Indian mind and to the Indian strategic mind. Thank you so much, Ashok. Thank you so much, Bani. The information domain is critical in warfare. Given the rapid developments of technology, it is increasingly weaponized by our adversaries. Dr. Jake Wallace speaks to Yanis Satz, Director of the NATO Strategic Communications Centre of Excellence. They discuss how NATO and like-minded countries such as Australia are combating disinformation and whether there is a model for deterrence in the information domain. Yanis, thank you for being with us today. It's fascinating to hear your perspective on strategic communications. Can we start at the beginning? And can you give me an understanding of why NATO established this NATO Strategic Communications Centre of Excellence and what's its purpose? Well, first and foremost, obviously, NATO has been recognizing the importance of information and the way both information is presented, the way the operations communicate to people in a way that supports the goals of NATO or operational goals. And the realization, especially back in Afghanistan, that we're not really doing a properly good job. And also on the other side, that was the Baltic states recognizing increased Russian capability in that area and seeing that as one of the future potential national security risks. And so that was where the interests merged and the center was created. Our role is to basically create a knowledge, to create a knowledge on what it takes to when in the information war, how it is to create a resilience in a society against hostile influence attacks, what is what we have to do to safeguard our freedoms and values against the attack of the authoritarian aggressive states, and what is what we have to do to understand the technology's role into it, and not only to look at what happened yesterday, but adequately prepare for what is, ha- is going to happen tomorrow. It is a difficult task, but as a center, we try to use that knowledge to help allies, partners to prepare for this and be able to win that is increasingly called a cognitive warfare with the authoritarian states. Thank you. Now, you, you, I notice you're using you're using terms like war and, and warfare, the information war. And warfare is essentially about getting getting your opponent to do what you want. To what extent can information warfare achieve this in the place of armed conflict? Well, we just have to look at the Crimea. In an essence, Crimea was an information operation supported with some small kinetic element and that had a strategic impact. So unfortunately, that example is uh, from the other side. I hope we will eventually be able to do something 
but in a way i would argue partly the the long gone success was the collapse of the soviet union also in a way putting forward the values of democracy and i had an interesting uh, experience of 18 years living in the soviet system and actually being the one that kind of at the age of 18 19 stood on the barricades and fought for that freedom it was a very important element in a way probably that was the west success but we've not had much since unfortunately and i hope that we will be able to really do it more in the future that's that's a really interesting perspective you talked about values it's not an even playing field when we have adversaries or strategic competitors who are more aggressive assertive in the information domain they're willing to use disinformation and propaganda in ways that we're we're reticent to um, is there a way that we can counter this or is there a model of deterrence how how can we win the information war and and retain our values well first and i think basic is you can't fight propaganda with propaganda so it is asymmetric the response we have to do and also the other acknowledgement is that at a tactical distance we will always be disadvantages because we don't do the lies we don't come up with a conspiracy theories as a as a matter of practice and we are if we want to be true to ourselves we are to be within the kind of values and principles that we stand for so therefore the only way we can do is a kind of with a strategic perspective of things and one lesson we have from our region which has been hard pressed by russia in this area and has also a significant vulnerabilities is to create the societal resilience because eventually i think also the war in ukraine demonstrates it war is not something that is outside of the whole of the society all of the society is part of it and therefore also in this information aspect in the war of wills it is a society that is the ultimate element that has to prevail and therefore there have been different techniques and lessons being applied in our region how can we create this resilience within a society then when this attack comes it's not only that the government agencies have to respond but the whole of society is able to and in a way we would argue that is is one of the reasons ukraine has been successful in in europe because the society took it rather than left it to the government governments bureaucracies tend to be slow societies are more created around networks and perhaps that's a secret that we can leverage off the power of networks well yes first thing that really uh, i think is very important is that the information space has moved into the digital mm-hmm. yes there's still traditional media but the real place is the digital and the nature of that digital is network and therefore yes society in a way is the best placed to have these effects but there is a but i think we've all observed over the last 5 or more years the fragmentation of the society against the lines of echo chambers information bubbles so 
there is a double effort necessary, and that is to ensure that we have still some cohesive elements in the society against this bubbleization, if I may put it this way, and then also the resilience from the hostile. So it's not an easy task by any means, but I think we have some success stories in our regions that have been doing quite well on that front. I've, I've got a couple of questions that are framed around cooperation. So your role is very much about uh, dealing with a range of partners. How well are partners cooperating in this domain? Well, the centre is, I think, nine years old, and we've seen a big dynamic. At the very early years, there were very few countries that really realised how important that area is. But I think the trend in last three, four years, and of course, during the last year, there's a war in Ukraine revealing so much of that importance, we've seen a very big growing interest. And it means partners in all senses of the word, partners of, between countries, partners between government and non-government, partnering with the research institutions, partnering with the universities, but also partnering with the countries like Australia, which are in a geographical sense very far away, but at the core of problem facing very much the same issues. And that is the strength, I think, of democracy versus autocracy that we can leverage. We are about cooperation, hearing the other sides, listening and being able to kind of find a compromises that we all can become stronger. And that is, I think, the way the center of excellence concept is. Probably for NATO headquarters, it's much more difficult to do that wide networking. But these institutions like ours are more flexible and reaching out here to Australia, to Southeast Asia, to the regions where we see there are potential partners, where we can have a mutual benefits and where we can mutually reinforce both uh, knowledge, but also ability to succeed. Can I follow up on that by asking about partnership with industry? Because it strikes me that industry are creating, generating many of the the new and emerging technologies that, that provide strategic advantage in many ways. They're also often the attack surface. They're the critical infrastructure that adversaries might target. They're the, they're, they provide the attack service through which authoritarian states try to influence their own populations or the domestic populations of, of adversaries. How do you see partnership of industry? Is that something that the Center of Excellence is, is, has courage of? Yes, of course. And it's sometimes a love and hate relationships because, of course, we also do call out industries like social media many times for not living up to the standard to uh, treating us citizens in democratic countries adequately, the privacy issues, uh, ability to take away the hostile influence networks is sometimes very questionable. Yet on the other side, it is very important to have them on our side. Not to mention the fact that technology is a very dynamic area. So there are technologies that are incoming that will yet again revolutionize the information space. And we have to interact with those that are creating those that at least part of the lessons learned from today's technologies are 
important in the thinking about developing the next ones. So that is a big task. It is not an easy one. But in a way, I think that is something that we all have to really understand the importance of and also this dual nature. In a way, being able to see and call out when necessary, but also when possible, give the advice and insights. Does does NATO, uh, for example, see artificial intelligence as uh, a, a domain that requires strategic investment through its um, partnership structure in order to drive strategic advantage in the information domain? Is is Does NATO consider investment in emerging technologies as a critical issue? Absolutely. We uh, certainly see that emerging technologies is one of the areas where this competition will pan out. And I would actually argue one of the key areas of competition. So creating the strategic culture and thinking understanding, investment, is what NATO is doing. Of course, it's very dynamic environment, and it is sometimes difficult to keep up. But especially in a information domain, the introduction of the latest AI tools, chatbot GPT, GPT-4 up to come, and, and numerous others exploding right now, just gives one one small element of of how it transforms and it can be both an opportunity and a challenge and a risk and therefore yes that is one of our also roles within the kind of ecosystem of NATO to make NATO aware and prepare but of course there are many other actors that are investing in that and, and that is certainly key consideration for keeping the NATO's edge in the future. Yanis, thank you so much for talking to us today. We, we very much value your observations. Thank you very much for having me. Finally, we were delighted to be joined by Netherlands Vice Minister for Foreign Affairs, Marcel de Vink, for a conversation focused on geopolitics and Australia-Netherlands collaboration. Beck Shrimpton asks the Vice Minister about the global implications of Russia's war on Ukraine, NATO's approach to international security, and the need to develop societal resilience. It is terrific to welcome Vice Minister for Political Affairs, Marcel De Fink, to the ASPE podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Rebecca. It's great to be on the show. Uh, look, the world that we're all facing today is increasingly a splintered dynamic and a challenging one. The global integration and advancing tech of the last several decades has created dynamics that we didn't altogether predict. In many cases, it was underpinning connectivity and opportunity, but it also increased inequality, hollowed out the middle class in many places, and has stoked somewhat of a backlash and division. So it's created interdependencies and dependencies, and these are rapidly becoming vulnerabilities rather than the strengths that we originally envisaged. The dynamics uh, have provided opportunities, of course, for exploitation. And global systems built on ideas and values that for so many underpinned peace, stability and prosperity now face challenges. There are very real and serious differences in values and interests that are becoming ever clearer. And these can't easily be masked over 
by the idea of cooperation where we can get it. Sovereignty has been challenged directly, indirectly, covertly through corruption and through coercion. The Russian invasion of Ukraine stunned many who thought the days of full-scale conventional warfare in Europe would never be repeated. And these trends have led to a growing conversation about spheres of influence. But while it can be easy to see the world as a collection of regions, each with distinct challenges and requiring tailored solutions, in a deeply globalised world, even in one that is to an extent bifurcating along specific lines, it's important, I think, to maintain a global view. The splintering that we see is thematic and it's ideological rather than regional. For example, the dramatic shifts occurring in Europe right now are highly relevant to and connected in very important ways to events that are unfolding in the Indo-Pacific and elsewhere on the planet. And so it is against this complex backdrop that I turn to our guest today, Mr Marcel Defink. Vice Minister, you've just arrived in Australia, quite literally. May I ask, by starting, what brings you here? Yeah, let me first of all say thank you very much for having me on the show. And it's really good to be here. Uh, you know, Australia and the Netherlands have been friends for many, many years, so we go way back. But as you said in your introductions, these are very uncertain times. Global security and stability is at stake. We see this every single day with the war in Europe going on. But I think, you know, especially in a time of uh, geopolitical turmoil and risk, it is really important to know who your friends are, to discuss that. That's actually why I'm here and, and I'm very much looking forward to discuss developments here in the region with my counterparts at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on the war in Ukraine, on China and, and all the other issues that are, that are at stake right now. Yes, thank you. We are, we are similarly looking forward to, to getting your insights and your, your perspectives. They're very valuable and always very, very interesting. You did mention China. The US recently released its national security strategy, which stated that China is, and I quote, the only competitor with both the intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military and technological power to do it. Can I ask you, how is China seen from the Netherlands' perspective? Do you agree that China is set on reshaping the global order? And if it is, what kind of world do you think it's trying to create? Yeah, I think I think over the past couple of years, we've you know increasingly recognised that that China is, of course, a partner, that it's a competitor, but that it's also a systemic rival. And you know, uh, has also is challenging the rules-based international order in some ways, and so that rules-based order has brought us a lot. Uh, I think that's also what we have very much in common with uh, with Australia, and we need to make sure that we're able to sustain that. At the NATO summit last year. Uh, in Madrid, for the very first time, NATO also took up language and the strategic concept on, on China. And, and we've described there that China is now a, a challenge. And um, NATO is looking first and foremost at Euro-Atlantic security. But it's, it's also true that in this world, security is global uh, and that we need to look at that from a global perspective. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think it's uh, it's 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 really important. There's both um, opportunity in taking that global approach, but it also allows you to see, uh, you know, a lot more than the, than the sum of 
the parts of actions, if you like. The other thing that that we've noticed is that just across the the ditch from the Netherlands, we have seen now the the new UK Prime Minister formally designate China as a threat. Uh, that's that's pretty strong language. It's it's not language that I've heard you use so far. From an Australian perspective, for some time, we have we have felt a little like Europe was so focused on Russia as that as the close challenge and um and a very real one. But sometimes that that bigger, longer term and more complex challenge from China perhaps was missed. But even now with Russia's recent outrageous and illegal actions, it does seem to us down here like things are changing. Uh, you've mentioned that some of the language in NATO and its concepts and strategy has now accepted or designated China as, as a challenge. Is it your sense that Europe more broadly is sharpening its focus? And, and may I ask you to to perhaps reflect on that beyond the military domain, perhaps to think about sort of you know, what's happening in the economic sphere and, and in the political sphere as well. You make very valid points. I mean, I think first and foremost, the invasion of, of Russia and the unprovoked aggression was a huge shock to the system, not just of uh, Euro- the European security architecture, but uh, a global one, because what has happened in Ukraine is not a uh, is not just a European problem it has global consequences. And so uh, China is, of course, a different, is a a different challenge. As I said, it's a challenge to the rules-based international order in different ways. And I think what we are uh, seeing in terms of technology and in terms of cyber, there are threats that we need to, that we need to deal with that are also very much challenging our own societies. And so we're very focused on the resilience of our own societies and see how we can address those uh, those challenges that uh, that that come from many uh, from many different angles. So it's a challenge, you know, also in terms of disinformation, democracy that is under that is in our own system under threat that is increasingly something that we're that we're focused on. So that's a whole wide range. Of, of issues that we uh, that we are trying to deal with. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for that. I, I really like your focus there or your mention of, of social resilience and just the term resilience. It is increasingly an important term that we're all that we're all grasping with and understanding what sits behind. But if we turn perhaps now to to the uh, invasion of, of Ukraine by Russia, this is something that that I, I know will be keeping you incredibly busy. Are you willing to offer any kind of assessment of the current situation and perhaps a view on where we're headed? And in particular, I guess uh, we're always interested in this part of the world. Does Europe have the, the will and the staying power to see Russia repelled and to see Ukraine victorious in this competition? Yeah, absolutely. The war in Ukraine for us, I think, is existential. So as far as the Netherlands is concerned, you know, we we have decided that we are doing whatever it takes, as long as it takes. We have for uh, 2023 committed uh, a huge amount of money, a few billion to provide in military support. But it's not just the military challenge. It's also making sure that uh, there is uh, justice being done, uh, so we invest a lot in accountability. 
We provide humanitarian support. As you know, uh, the level of destruction and devastation is, is huge. Daily attacks on the critical infrastructure uh, that need to be addressed. So there's a whole range of challenges, but for us, it's very clear that Ukraine must win this war. We cannot afford to lose this one. And that, that means that in, in the whole wide range of, uh, of issues, as I've said, we will have to sustain this. I think 2022 has been, despite the war, has been positive in the sense uh, that we've seen a lot of unity in NATO, in the EU, but also other nations like Australia that have stepped up. And we, uh, we are tremendously grateful for what Australia has done in terms of military support, in terms of uh, humanitarian support, in terms of political support, which has been hugely important to make sure that we uh, the, we remain united also in the in a difficult year to come. That's terrific. Thank you. I think um, there are many down here in this part of the world that would agree with you that that Ukraine must win this war. But I really like what you said there. Something for us all to remember. Uh, whatever it takes, as long as it takes. That's a really important approach and a and a great commitment from the Netherlands. Of course, the Netherlands and Australia have worked together before, both in a serious conflict and and one that involved you know multifaceted contributions, including around reconstruction and humanitarian aid. And that, of course, was Afghanistan. Mm. Australian Dutch ties go back a, a very long way, and that's um, that is in the military realm, but it is in far more than that as well. It's a long time ago now, but I did work for several years on Afghanistan from a civil perspective, and that included looking at models for cooperation both between nations, but also the different models of the provincial reconstruction teams that we developed. It was really clear to me there, and, and to many Australians who have incredibly fond memories of working with Dutch counterparts. You know, Urzgan was was a terrific example of just how closely aligned our two countries are and how well they work, not only at the policy level, but but on the ground. So as we head into another period of geopolitical upheaval, I guess my last question to you is, what areas do you think uh, you see Australia and the Netherlands working most closely on together in the coming years? Yeah, before I answer that, let me let me just say I totally agree with you. We've had tremendous cooperation in Afghanistan. We've been there fighting, uh, but also reconstructing shoulder to shoulder. And it's really testimony to the great relation that we have. And another example that comes to mind is the really great cooperation that we've had on MH17, you know, the the, the flight that was downed. Oh, yes. yes. Um, uh, because of Russia eight years ago now. Yes. Um, but on your question, you know, I think we're oceans apart, but I think, as we as we said earlier, I think our security is very much connected, more and more so, because its security is uh, the concept of security is so much wider now than as we used to define it. Look at cyber, look at hybrid threats, look at critical technologies that are increasingly higher on the on the agenda. So, in this really rapidly changing and deteriorating global security environment you know like-minded countries like the netherlands and australia need to work together uh, we share the same values we want to keep up the international rules-based order and and you know because of those values and because of those interests interests we need to work together um, to face the common threats and challenges and we cannot separate 
the different theaters anymore. So what happens in Europe and the war in Ukraine is a good example, is relevant for what's uh, for the developments here in Asia and vice versa, because you know we we realize looking at the developments in Asia that there's a great power competition also going on here that is increasingly affecting not just the security but also the economic conditions and and also in that sense we need to make sure that we work on disruptive technologies together on economic security but also on an issue like climate change that is also so relevant for uh, an existential for many countries in this region yes that's that, look that is an excellent point to end on and i and i realize that i have been talking to you for a while and you must be very tired so i am going to uh I'm going to to let you um let you stop there on that great note. I, I really agree. There are there are so many things that we that we must cooperate on and uh, and global collaboration and and growing that consensus and and building it out is really the only way that we will get there. So um, look, I want to thank you for your time today. We at SBE, of course, are very much looking forward to further engagements with you while you're here beyond the the fabulous Australian Dutch relationship we are going forward with the partnership with the uh the dutch embassy the embassy of croatia and the embassy of estonia in australia and also including nato's cooperative cyber defense center of excellence uh on that one your your reference to cyber was a lovely segue uh we're taking a closer look at the impact of geopolitical and technical changes on cyber risk so Vice Minister Defink, I thank you so much for your insights and a great conversation today. And I really look forward to continuing that with you while you're here. Many thanks, Rebecca. It was a great pleasure. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>